So the way this is going to work, uh, we're going to do three sets of questions and answers, uh, two or three questions per set. In between, there will be a song. The worship team will come up and we'll do a song. That'll give you a chance to write another question and submit it if you wish. Okay, so uh, let's just start. We have just wanted to welcome up our panel for today, this esteemed group. Should I sit between them? Like, uh, okay. pattern thing going. You obviously didn't get the memo, so... <laughs> so we start uh, uh, with Pastor Mike. Uh, you, you join actually about the same. You join. We would join about the same time. You get paid though. So, <laughs> but, uh, so Mike, uh, you've been in ministry over thirty years. Yeah, married to Hope for thirty-three years. Thirty-five years. Right. Okay. Good. Where's Hope? You've been in ministry longer then. So. <laughs> but uh, they have five kids, uh, eight grandkids, and potentially more on the way. So big hand for Mike. Okay. Congratulations. Yeah. So here we have uh, Eric. Uh, Eric joined uh, in 2014 for full-time. I mean, you were serving and looking after the young adults and stuff like that. And now uh, you're on staff with a focus on the youth ministries. And uh, you still that's my job. Oh, that's sorry. Yeah. Kids. Kids. I think kids. young youth. Kids. Young adults. Young youth. Yeah. Youth. The you youth. got resolved the, the mosaic. The little youth. And He's then got the, there's the big youth. And nursery. So anyway. Right. Um, the, the, the hidden uh, champion behind Eric is Sarah. Where is she? She's in Monkey Bar. She's actually taking care of them she's today working. while you're here. She's, she, working, she's working. But she also does the facilities. So she, uh, she takes care of all this uh, beautiful uh, place we have here. And, uh, so She'd about, actually be the best person on this panel. She really would. Well, hope, she and Hope would. <laughs> maybe Alicia, <laughs> too. For the, for the really hard questions. <laughs> we'll we'll just bring them up when we're stumped. And uh, uh, our newest member of the pastoral staff is Nate. Welcome, Nate. Hello. Oh, sorry. Hello. Hand for Eric and hand for Nate. So Nate has uh, just joined us, uh, just August last year. So everybody coming up in a year? Close we're, to we're at the end of August, so I've already done my year. You've done your year? Yeah. Okay, congratulations. I'll be honest, well, I, I'm slight dis- I have dyslexia. Not slight, I actually have dyslexia. I thought he was a man- married to Elijah for a while, but it's Elisha. Elisha. Elisha, yeah. Elisha. Which inspired him. So hopefully uh, that'll benefit you today. So we had some questions in advance. Uh, we're going to start with those. I'll, if you guys want to step in and say who will take the question, or I'll direct the question. So we'll just pull we'll one out. You. Oh! So this, this question, and it doesn't say who they're from, fortunately, but it says, uh, explain double predestination. <laughs> Not just predestination, double predestination. Thankfully, Eric's actually studying, so... Right, yeah, that's right. So I'm actually studying, so... That, um, I'll, I'm going to preface this. So explain double predestination. I'm going to preface this by saying that um, I don't think any of us can give a super answer to this because um, double predestination and predestination... Um, comes a lot from Reformed theology, um, so Christian Reformed, um, which is all inspired by um, John Calvin. Um, none of us grew up Reformed, um, and so our understanding of Reformed theology um, is more from the outside looking in. So there are probably actually some people here who grew up Reformed or have come out of the Reformed Church who could probably give you an even better answer than, than I'm going to try and give. But um, double predestination, the idea is, is that um, the, it's the belief that God predestines certain people to heaven. What's predestined mean? Well, predestined means that they are, from the beginning, from before God created the world, God determined that certain people, what was going to happen in, in, in the lives of everyone, essentially, and that certain people were going to go to be with him, to be saved and go to heaven. And so the belief in predestination is that God um, determines that 
you, Thank you. are going to make it to heaven. So, <laughs> and no matter what happens, you will go to heaven. Now, God's already seen all that. He's, he's organized everything so that, so that the world is going to happen in the best possible way, and that means that you're going to go to heaven. Double predestination, though, is the flip side of this belief in God's, because God is sovereign, he knows everything, he controls everything, he, everything in the universe is under his control. So that means that if God controls who goes to heaven, double predestination means that by that measure, God must also preordain who's going to go to hell. And so double predestination is actually the belief that not only does, does God determine who's going to go to heaven, God determines that certain people are going to go to hell. And that no matter what, that, that from before they were born, God knew they were going to hell. And that they were going to, and, and there was nothing that they could do to change that. Now, that, that's, that's a very difficult theology. And most people, if they have an issue with Reformed theology, it's usually on this concept of predestination. And then particularly in predestination, because it's really hard to imagine a kind and loving um, gracious God who predetermines that certain people are going to go to hell no matter what it is that they do with their lives. That's a very difficult thing. And that, that's a very um, cut and dry answer to the question, right? Without, uh, there's probably a whole bunch of subtleties to it, and, uh, but again, that's our, our view from the outside in, and uh, it doesn't reflect anything negative on people who are of the Reformed background. No, no. And, and, and in fact, they they wrestle with that very, uh, and they would have all sorts of great reasons why this actually makes God more beautiful and, and, and it gives a, it, it more, more glory to God. Um, so, you know, I don't want to sort of put a damper on, on their theology. Uh, it would just be, that's what they believe. And, and a lot of people have a hard time with that. They have good reasons for it, and they point to all sorts of scriptures that they would say this is why, this, um, why we believe in, in predestination and double predestination as well. Um, in general, I don't think we would land on even... So what do we believe, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got to that question. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, we would believe that God um, has control, um, that God created the world, and that he has control over it, but at the same time, he's given us free will, and that there are also other agents in the world, um, spiritual agents, um, so what we would call angels and demons, that also have free will, and that God um, allows, steps back, and allows us to operate our free will. He reduces his free will in a way um, in order to allow us to operate within our free will and God respects our choices and so that there isn't so that um, the choices we make actually do matter that it's not just predestined um, predetermined before so that would probably be how roughly how we'd approach it okay very good thank you okay that's a lot of talking for a like three word question yeah <laughs> okay Nate, you have two, oh, three, got three new, new ones. questions submitted. So what will we do? Well, maybe we'll pick one of these. I like okay. the first one. I can answer it. I've just shuffled them up. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Heard this about this Calvinist that fell down the stairs. <laughs> said, I'm glad that's over with. <laughs> nope. Pick one. Pick one. <laughs> okay. Ah, I, it's not the one I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> They go it the was box. predetermined that you wouldn't get that one. <laughs> Do you want that one? You can have that one. So the question is, how does forgiveness work in our relationships outside the marriage relationship? I think forgiveness works um, in relationships the same whether you're married to the person or not. 
Um, obviously, um, you know, the Bible puts, Jesus' teaching puts a really high premium on forgiving those who have offended us. We forgive as we have been forgiven. And that's not like a, a stick that's held over us. You don't forgive, I won't forgive you kind of thing. God's not going to forgive you if you don't forgive your, your, um, those who, who, you're, who you've got a broken relationship with. Um, but it is, it is a, a sense that you really can't walk in health and maturity in your life without dealing with the broken relationships in your life. There has to come healing into your broken relationships. And whether that's uh, in a marriage relationship or whether that's in a friendship or a working relationship or within the church, it's very important that we take the steps that we need to take um, to, uh, to repair relationships that, um, to the point where they can be repaired. And so, and forgiveness is not the same as trusting. Forgiveness is not the same as, um, as um, uh, you know, embracing that person again into your life, into a place in your life. Forgiveness is really just kind of a letting go of that person and the situation. So I think, uh, I hope that answers the question a little bit, but... Um, I like yeah. what you said that forgiveness is not necessarily trusting. Because a lot of times we get that mentality. If I'm going to forgive, then all of a sudden everything has to be okay again. And it, that's not the truth. Like, to forgive means you let go of that bitterness, you let go of the hurt, you let go of the anger, and you set that aside. It doesn't mean the relationship continues exactly as it was, but it's, uh, what was the saying? The saying is like, bitterness is like taking poison and hoping it affects someone else. The bitterness just eats you away. So unforgiveness is very helpful for yourself. It doesn't necessarily restore a relationship, but it, it lets you move on in a healthier and better atmosphere. Okay. All right. Thank you. So we're time, we'll do one more in this set, and then we'll take a break for the song. So, in the box. Do, 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 do. <laughs> okay. This was touched on, I think, in one of the uh, previous talks in the, in the summer. So it says, why did God create man when he knew man would suffer? Why did God create man when he knew man would You're suffer? You're looking at me. Yeah, well, you talked about it. You talked about it last he's week. He's off the hook. So I, I preached on it last week. Okay. Yeah, he, he preached on it last week, so he's bit. off the hook. So I free. preached on it a little. It really comes back to free will, or at least that's my understanding. And as we talked about it last week, I was like, iron sharpens iron. Sometimes we don't have a full answer because I can't tell you why God created me because I'm created, not the creator, and so I'm missing some information. Uh, but with free will, God has allowed our praise, our love, to be true, uh, as we talked about predestined. If I am just told to do something, there's no sincerity in it. We see a child when you say, tell them to go forgive someone or shake their hand, and they won't even look at you. They're staring at the floor like, I'm sorry. And you're like, we know it's not sincere. It's not real. And so where... And we see suffering come into it is God allowed us to have free will, which means we're dumb at times and we're selfish and we make bad choices and we hurt other people. And so we deal with that pain and suffering. And sometimes that pain hurts ourselves. Sometimes it hurts someone else. And sometimes God allows it because it changes and grows us. Um, pruning, gardening is all over the Bible. And when we think about it, it's violent. Like when you garden, you are cutting, you're digging, you're ripping but it always grows and flourishes and becomes something better. You plant something, you put it under the ground. It doesn't mean it's buried to die, but it's planted to grow and root up. And so suffering does at times have a benefit to it, as painful and horrible as that sounds. Yeah, and I think to just kind of add to that, so if God did not 
predestined or predetermined the outcome of the world. So God created the world. And so I wouldn't say that God necessarily knew that man would suffer. He knew it was a possibility. God, God in his infinite wisdom knows all the future possibilities. But he, based on our free will choice. And so he created the world for the purpose, um, he created us for the purpose of loving him, loving ourselves, loving each other, and loving the world around us. And love is only possible. there. Yeah, you yeah, see that? brought our, our motto in. It's yeah, good. good. Well, sort of, yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, you totally do. Good I'm job. sorry. <laughs> um, but if God creates the possibility of love, if there's a possibility of true, real love, like Nate's saying, then there has to be the possibility of true pain. And so um, the people that we love the most are the people who actually are most likely to break our hearts the most. And so if God creates us with the capacity to love, then he crea created us with the capacity to feel pain as well and to create pain. Or not love. Or not love. And so... And so I don't think God created the world knowing that man would suffer, but he knew it was a possibility because the, and he, we take into account that suffering is possible, but suffering, we don't see suffering as a completely bad thing because it's suffering that makes the possibility for there to be love and healing and hope and things like that. Which also brings us to the good news of the Bible that we keep talking about, that there's a restorative narrative that God, throughout the Bible, if you look at it as an overarching theme from the beginning of Genesis to Revelation, God is restoring, fixing, rebuilding, mm -hmm. to reclaim and say, okay, we realize pain and suffering is here, and it sucks. So how do we fix that? How do we redeem and restore that? Right. And James makes it very clear that God is not the author of our suffering, yep. that he brings, he's not the one that brings those things to us. So anybody who says, well, you know, God's punishing me or God's, God's uh, correcting me with this horrible suffering in my life, that really is not consistent with Scripture. Um, but he is able to redeem the suffering that you're experiencing and uh, and make it work for you. So right, All right. Yeah, and right. use that suffering okay. for restorative. So very purposes. good. Thank yes. you guys. So uh, thank you for the questions. Uh, we got three or four came in. I'm sure there's room, time and room for a few more. Uh, so we'll be back up after this song. Thank you. Whoa. So uh, way more than we will get through. So leave you to think about how to follow up. Yeah, I was thinking about that, and uh, we will answer every question um, eventually, but I think what we'll do is uh, I'm going to suggest uh, we answer them on our blog. Okay. We haven't used our blog in a long time, and it'll be a great use of our blog to answer these questions. Any leftover ones? Excellent. Yeah. Good plan. This is good. I was nervous. There's going to be none. I was oh. going to have to banter. <laughs> I get awkward. Okay. Oh. No. And that I wasn't talk. awkward at and all. And then I talk. Oh, okay. That hasn't been a problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, uh, good question. I'm going to start with this one with, with Mike, right? How do you balance being somebody's leader as well as their friend? That was the question I wanted. <laughs> well, Mike. you'll get your turn. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think the way you have to look at leadership in, uh, in the Bible, or, or Christian leadership, is, um, is maybe different than other areas of leadership. Um, you know, when you think of leadership and you think of the military, for instance, um, it's about giving orders, right? And you follow orders. Um, and, um, and I don't think that's the kind of, that's the kind of system that, that uh, um, we see modeled in the scriptures for believers and in, in the faith. I think it's more of a, a brotherhood, brother, sister. You know, we, we used to do that all the time, call each other brother and sister uh, in church. Um, and I think that's, the, you know, so the, there's not this sense of 
lording it over someone, your leadership over. So I think you can be friends with people that you're in leadership over if you have mutual respect for one another. And it's kind of the same as the Bible's teaching on, uh, on marriage, where, you know, it says, um, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives obey your parents, or wives, <laughs> wives obey your husbands. And then it says, um, uh, and husbands and wives submit to one another. So it's not like there's a hierarchy here. It's a, it's a system that works together, I think. That's how I would answer it. But maybe you'd answer it differently. That was actually one of the hardest things I, I learned out of Bible college or tried to figure out. I was like, how do you turn leadership off? Like, I came out of Bible college and I, I got a job at a past, as a pastor right away. I'm like, this is great. But then as you're trying to make new friends, as you're trying to connect with people in the church, how do you, how do you flip from being the leader to, to someone's friends. And um, there's two kind of words of advice that were given to me. And, and the pastor I worked under really kind of modeled that fantastically for me. His name was Greg. And so he sometimes had an alter ego where he called himself Craig. And, uh, hey, Craig. I, yeah. <laughs> but the difference between Greg and Craig was Greg knew that he needed a place to be himself. And a lot of times when you're in leadership, you get trapped in stocking being a leader and you're like, how do you turn off? How do you be yourself? How do you even find forgiveness for yourself or a place to be open? And so he made sure that he was able to find people within the church that it's like, right now, I'm not the pastor. I'm not your leader. And so I was able to witness that a few times where he'd go to a house and they'd be playing games or having dinner or whatever. And someone would almost start up with a leadership question or ask him about the church. And he's like, that's not who I am right now. And I think that's something important that we need to do as leaders is be able to be friends. Otherwise, you get stuck in a really lonely spot. And there's a lot of leaders that get stuck in that where they're like, I can't talk to anyone. I can't be real myself. And then you see them burn out because they're so busy trying to be the leader. And that was something I really needed to learn. So uh, I, the biggest advice he gave me is find people in the church that either or outside of the church that either don't see you as a leader or can turn it off. And so that's something I've been fortunate in coming here. I had friends outside of Parkway where I can just be their friend. And there are people here, uh, I mean, Brian and I are a great example because we've had a mentoring relationship. And there are moments where we'll switch back and forth. And it's like, Brian, right now, I'm not your friend. I'm, I'm, I'm your leader. Maybe, maybe the best way to put it, another way here is you can always be their buddy, but, or you can always be their friend, but you can't be their buddy. Uh, and that's the way I've looked at doing youth ministry is if I cross the line of just being buddy old pals and like punching each other in the gut, um, I've lost the ability to lead and have authority over them. But if I can stay their friend, then I can step back and be like, listen, I'm your pastor right now and I need to speak into you and it can suck. It can be hard, but this is the relationship we have. And so that's where I kind of see leadership and friendship. Like there, it's a balance, but you need to make sure there's people that see you as friends at okay. the same time. Okay. Well, Nate, we're delighted you're here as a leader, and we're delighted that you've got friends here, too. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Um, next question. I'm going to start with you, Eric. Um, does it matter how a body is handled after death, cremation or burial, you know, the treatment? And, and how does, you know, when you talk, think about the resurrection, are these things important? Yeah. Um, I'll start, actually, with the second half of that question before I get to the first half of the question. Um, I, in terms of the resurrection, I don't think how a body is handled after um, it dies makes any difference to God as to whether he's going to be able to resurrect it or not. Um, basically, if you have to wait long enough for the resurrection anyways, even if you're buried, there's really not going to be much to work with to start. So, uh, um, so if you're cremated, you're pro eventually, if you wait long enough, you basically get to the same place. So um, 
you know, I, I don't think that makes a huge difference. Um, however, I do think when it comes to um, cremation versus burial, things like that, a lot of those things are cultural, um, you know, so what's culturally acceptable in your society. But also I think an important thing is, is which of those methods um, treats the body um, in a particular situation gives respect to that person and gives honor to that person. Um, so, you know, there may be situations where um, the right thing to do for grandma is that the, the honoring thing to do would have been to bury her, um, and then everybody kind of made a decision, well, it's cheaper and more efficient, and we decided to just go ahead and, and cremate her. And that's not, and then in that case, I would say, like, cremation isn't probably the best idea because it's not what was honoring in that situation. But, I mean, if grandma was like, hey, I would, I would love to be cremated and do that, then, then, then go for it. But, you know, I think it's really what, what's honoring in that situation. I don't think however you bury or whatever happens after you're dead in terms of your actual physical body, I don't think that has any bearing on God's ability to resurrect you. I think... Um, we get new bodies anyways. So. That's right. You get new <laughs> bodies anyway. And, you know, the scripture does say even, even the sea will give up its dead at the resurrection. So even people that have been buried at sea, right, the, you know, um, um, will, will, be, will be resurrected. That's not a problem for God to bring all of those elements back together um, and, uh, and to recreate um, our bodies, which is the promise and the hope of, uh, of Jesus' resurrection. I think as far as scripture is concerned, um, and Eric said it's a cultural thing, and it is, the Jews would never burn a body that they respected. Okay, so if you look at the Old Testament, they would never burn a body. The only time that a body was burned is if, it was, if the person was disrespected completely. So oftentimes it would be in their place of battle, they would burn the enemy, but they would never burn um, uh, their own they would uh, honor that body and bury it with their forefathers. So that was kind of a sense of culture there uh, for them. Um, even David, um, whose enemy was King Saul for so many years, when Saul was killed in battle and the enemy enemies had taken him and they had uh, uh, hung him on a wall, you know, they, they just posted, like, stuck him on a wall. How they did that, I don't know. But um, uh, a very That's violent, gruesome thing. David... Um, who was going to succeed Saul as king, David sent and, and had Saul's body delivered back to Israel so that it could be buried properly and proper respect and honor could be shown to Saul in that way. So I think that's the key element there is how do we effectively honor and, um, someone's life um, that deserves honor when they pass away um, as opposed to the maybe the, the exact method of it. Um, I don't think that really has a lot of bearing on it, but the Jews would not have burned a body, and uh, that would have been something that they would have seen as a pagan thing to do. So. Okay, that, great answer. Great answer. Okay, uh, this one, uh, this is the last one for this set, and uh, I think it, it, the context of this one is around the Christian faith versus other faiths and who's right. So um, at what point do we stop evangelizing to people of other faiths and accept that they're on their own journey searching for their own divine truth, just as we are. Is it fair to accept that uh, we are not perfect and therefore our beliefs are not perfect, just as beliefs of other uh, non-Christians, brothers and sisters, are also not perfect? I, I think I'll start with that one because um, I actually wrote it out during the last song, so I had <laughs> some time to think about it. Um, I think you've got to turn that around um, and look at it. Number one, we're not on a journey to find God. God is on the journey to find us. We're the lost ones, um, and we're not, we're not the ones looking for God. Um, and, um, and I think God is open to anybody 
who is willing to open their heart and life to him. And um, so I think that God is not limited in his ability to reach people. It doesn't matter where they are in the world and what their faith is. I don't think um, that's, that's the problem. Um, and God is, God is there, and he has a way to reach every person, should they? You know, uh, uh, Paul said in Romans that, uh, that even uh, everybody has a witness of, the, um, of, the, of creation, and you can turn to God because you see the beauty and the majesty of creation. And, uh, and that can be enough to bring someone to God. And, um, and the revelation of what is required for belief in, uh, in all of that can, can happen. God can make that happen, whether it's by sending a missionary or, or whether it's through revelation, divine revelation, as Jesus did with Paul on the road to Damascus. And uh, so that kind of thing, uh, I think, is there. As far as our responsibility, because the question is, when do we stop evangelizing? Well, I don't think we ever stop evangelizing, right? Jesus didn't say, well, just try three times and then, you know, you're done. The Bible says, you know, go and make disciples of all people. That's our mandate. And that, and, and that just means that every one of us has a responsibility to live out the light of Christ in our life in front of all the people that we live in front of. What, it doesn't matter what their religion is, whether they're lapsed Christians or whether they're, they're um uh, Hindus or Muslims or our, our responsibility is to live out the light and the life of Christ all the time, 100% of the time um, and, uh, and I don't think we have any, ever get a free pass on that so. sure. um, I think it also depends on what your definition of evangelism is if you're feeling evangelism means I just need to read scripture to people and just always like can I always pray for you or just like come to church um, yeah, there might be a time to stop because now you're offending your neighbor and you're pushing them farther away. But if you're looking at evangelism as how is Christ being reflected through me? How am I talking to you? How am I treating you? How am I respecting you? And how are you making your faith just part of who you are? Uh, a lot of times we're terrified to pray for people or just say that I'm praying or associate with Christ being a Christian. And I think that can be a stronger testament. Um, a great case is one of my friends, he was saying he hangs out with his neighbor all the time, and they'd done that for a few years, and then they started doing gardening in the back, and so they went on a ride to Home Depot to pick up soil, and the neighbor goes, you stop talking about God to me. Not that the guy wanted to come to church or anything, but he's like, you stopped. And so my friend had to just really kind of stop and, and think and be like, when did I stop actually just mentioning God in my life that my non-Christian neighbor now notices it? And so it was a big heart check for him that his evangelism to his neighbor stopped because all of a sudden it's almost like it's not important enough or I, I don't feel connected enough to always just keep God in my conversation. And sometimes that's a stronger evangelism than, versus here's a Bible. And then what I would add to that too is kind of going back to the question and kind of going back to what Michael was saying in terms of like God is pursuing everybody is that I think our approach to, so we're living out um, the life that Jesus calls us to personally. We don't get it right all the time. We all make a lot of mistakes. We're living it very imperfectly. There's a lot of things about God we don't we understand imperfectly. Um, you know, there's this saying that like you know you don't know um, you don't know all the things that you have wrong because if you knew they were wrong you would change them. You know, um, you don't know the things that you, you've gotten wrong. Um, but you, you you live it out the best that you can because you believe because we believe that's the right thing to do and that's what we're called to do. But at the same time, we have to be aware that. God is pursuing everybody else. And so we often get this mentality that, like, God is absent from my neighbor's house. 
and that I have to go and I have to bring God to my neighbor's house. Maybe what's, what's been a helpful way for me to look at it is go, no, I believe that God is pursuing my neighbor at his house. And so when I go to that house, I need to have my eyes open and say, God, where, where are you? What are you at work at in this house? What, what are the things that my friend believes or is involved in or the actions in his life that I can affirm and say, you know what, that is, that is of God. And, 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 and just sort of celebrate those things. Instead of saying, like, I'm just going to tell you these are the things that are wrong in your life and you need to change those in order to you know, say, hey, I, I see God at work in your life and affirm that and then go from there and allow your life to, you know, if there's, if there's correction that needs to happen in their life, allow it, to, allow it to be done from the example of your life, but also be open to the fact that there may be things that you need to change based on the example of the lives of other people um, because we do really have to do this in humility. We can't come in with a, I, I'm going to bring God to you because I have all the answers, and that's just not, that's not going to, it's not going to fly and it's not going to work. Anybody who comes to me about anything who seems to already have everything figured out is, does not, that doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> um, but questions, conversations, those, those work a lot better, I think. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Okay, worship team. Yeah. Okay, guys, this is our last set. Well done. Final round. <laughs> Double jeopardy. <laughs> okay. I'll take easy questions for 100. <laughs> Okay, uh, I could have written this question myself, actually. So, if I'm saved by accepting Jesus in my life, how come I feel so ashamed when I make a mistake or fall into temptation? If I'm saved by accepting Jesus in my life, how come I feel so ashamed when I make a mistake or fall into temptation? Well, I think it's because we don't want to disappoint God and we don't want to disappoint ourselves. Um, and... Uh, so oftentimes when we fail to meet a standard that we ourselves have agreed to, then it's, it's a disappointment to ourselves. Um, and we feel like it's a disappointment to God, right? Um, and so shame can come as a result of that. So I think, uh, yeah, I think that's why um, we feel that way. But I think we need to understand that God doesn't, feel that way about it, right? He doesn't, um, he doesn't, he doesn't shame on you, um, and he doesn't turn his back on us because we have failed, and uh, at least I don't see him doing that, and I see him always pursuing us, even in our failure, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's done the pursuing, and it wasn't ever dependent upon us having a certain behavior, meeting a certain code of behavior. He understands who we are and what we're made of. The, the psalmist said he knows we are dust. He knows who we are, and he, he loves us the way we are. And his expectations for us are, are um, based on that. So he, he doesn't let us, he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to mature. And I've given this illustration before, but I, I see it now with my grandchildren more than I did with my children but you know they can do some really bad things and I just smile <laughs> right and I think that's how God is not not because I'm excusing that behavior 
I know they'll face the consequences of that behavior, but I also know they won't be doing that in a few years or when they're mature, that those are things that they're going to grow out of through the process of life. And I think God understands that some of our failure and some of our, 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 our struggles are just part of us working out that maturing process spiritually, and those things will eventually fall off. I think what I would, there's two quick things I'd add to that. One is that I think you're right in that the um, picture of God that we have in our head um, is probably one of, the, is one of the most fundamental, important things to, to how we live our life and how we, to our theology and, and our faith. Um, and so we oftentimes, um, you know, if we do something wrong and our immediate reaction is shame and that, you know, that God hates me, um, then, then we need to get back to that root picture of what God is like and maybe adjust that. Um, and that takes, that takes an incredible amount of work. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is also is that um, we're talking like God's the only person in this equation. God and us are the only person in this equation. But the scripture talks about Satan, or the Satan, as it said in the scripture, which really is the accuser. And so when we do something wrong, the immediate shame that we feel, that's not from God. That's from the accuser. That's the one who says, no, you're not good enough. You're, the, you're, you're not living up to this. God doesn't love you anymore. And, and these are lies that are being told to us, partly by ourselves, partly by... Uh, there, there's an outside force that, that puts these thoughts in our head and says, no, God doesn't love you when you do that. You can't really trust that God is good and that he'll be gracious towards you and forgive you. And so I, I think we can't forget that there's that, that other element there as well. That's where, a lot, where the shame comes from. I think siblings are a great illustration of that because you know when you've done something and your parents have been like, it's okay, we're going to get through this, I forgive you, and your sibling turns to you once your parents leave and like, mom didn't mean that. <laughs> and you're like, no, but she said, and she's like, no, you're bad. <laughs> Children are such a great illustration. Um, the one thing I want to add to that is save doesn't mean perfect, and we really get stuck in that. There are very few illustrations of when a person is saved that Jesus instantly changes everything about them. The reality is every example set before us has always been a process. And that's something I've tried to really put into our youth when we talked about salvation, was salvation doesn't mean as soon as I accept Christ, everything is perfect, I'm fixed, everything changes. It is a process. Uh, we've heard this statement before that God is a gentleman. And he will, he will take his time with you so that you grow, you learn it, you retain it. If there's an instant change, a lot of times we walk away too fast because it's not part of who we are. And we need to grow into that. And there's no perfect examples of people in the Bible outside of Jesus. So, you know, those stories there. that guy? That guy. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. There's no one. There's no one. <laughs> there we go. Next question. Yep. Okay, next question. Okay. Is the church open and welcoming to homosexuals? I think it means, is our church open and welcoming to homosexuals? What does this mean? Can I go first? Sure. Okay. He uh, snuck a read of the question, by the way, before <laughs> he began. <laughs> I was like, oh, this one's coming. Um, I think another question, before we get to that question, is, is our church opening and welcoming to people who gossip? Is our church opening, open and welcoming to people who lust? Is our church open and welcoming to people who tell lies? Is our church open and welcoming to people who have broken relationships in their lives? Is our church open and welcoming to pretty much anything you can list? And I believe the church is supposed to be open and welcoming to everybody with any hang-up that they come in with, with anything that we would perceive as a sin or things like that. So in order 
so I have to say yes to that question that the church is open and welcoming to homosexuals because the church is opening, open and welcoming to me, and I have all sorts of issues in my life, and if it's not welcoming to those people, then I become very worried that it won't be opening, open to me. And so it has to be open and welcoming. In that way, in that, in that, this is a place for people with, for broken people. There are no perfect people here, as we've been saying. And so anybody is welcome here. I think practically, though, living it out, we haven't done a great job in this area. Um, we have been, um, we've been very harsh to certain particular communities, and probably the homosexual community is one that the church has been very, very hard on because it just um, it triggers something in our cultural setting that that, um, that we feel very um, we feel like that group is very other than us, right? So we we have always put them on the on the other side, and um, so it's very difficult to break down those cultural barriers. But I think Jesus calls us to do that, um, and. Um, and I think we have, to, um, we have to be open to them. There's another question in there that might come up. Someone asked, because um, I just saw it when I brought it over, about transgender, the transgender issue that has you know, come up very much. And I want to tell a story about um, my experience. And uh, a man came to me in a, in a previous church, not in this church, um, a man from our church, a well-respected man in our church. He had been a board member, wasn't serving as, on the board at the time, but was actively involved in ministry and, and leadership in the church. And he asked me to have coffee with him, so we met at a Tim Hortons, and, um, and he told me about his transgender life, that every uh, week he would, um, one day a week he would dress up as a woman. He had a, a personality, a person that he was as a woman, and he would... Um, he would uh, he got, went and volunteered at a certain agency every week, and he took on the persona of this woman. And I remember sitting there saying to him, like it was like, you know, I saw him immediately. Someone that I had, someone that I had um, loved and accepted as a brother in Christ, all of a sudden became other to me. Right? He became something I didn't understand, something I didn't, um, I couldn't. Um, I couldn't relate to, and I immediately started quoting scripture at him. And I said, well, you know, the Bible says that God made the male and female, and this can't be, right? And I began to tell him, well, you need to, you need to step back from everything you're doing in the church so you don't become an embarrassment to the church. These are the things I told him. And uh, this is many years later, and I think what a disservice I did to that man. Because I never, I, never, um, I never took the time to understand the pain of his life and the brokenness in his life that he would actually be taking such huge steps to create a different personality. What was so deep inside of him that he would, that he would do what he's doing? This cost him tremendously with his family, with his church, I'm sure at his job. And all of these, what is going on in this man's life? And I never asked that question. I just worried about my relationship with him and the church's relationship with him and how it might affect the church. And I think I was horribly wrong. Horribly wrong. And when I see that man again, which I might in some time in life, I owe him, I owe him an apology. Because I did not treat him with the love and grace of Christ. So when I look at these questions about people, I think what I have to do is I have to step back and say, okay, what is actually, 
What's going on in their heart and life? And what, would, what does Jesus want to fix in their life? Because a lot of these things that people present themselves with, whether it's addiction or whether it's, whether it's um, you know, the whole list of things that Eric talked about, even gossip, when people are gossiping, and that's probably one of the favorite um, sins in the church, when people have these things, they're actually acting out of a broken place in their life. And God doesn't, is not so concerned about the outward thing as he is about coming in and healing the inward thing. And how are we going to get there? So if we won't be in fellowship with people who are struggling in life, if we push them away, then how can we ever really bring the healing power of Christ to them? And uh, so that's kind of where I'm at on the, picture, on the question. And um, so I would say, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, but at the same time, the challenge for me is to let go of my prejudice, my, my, my beliefs that, I don't, I, that haven't changed I don't think we have to change our beliefs. You know, we always used to, because I've been around this subject for a long time, we always used to say, well, we, we love the sinner and we hate the sin. We've done a horrible job of loving the sinners. We've done a great job at hating the sin. That's my assessment of the situation. I think I would add to that, too, is that one of the values that we talk about as a staff a lot is that we want people to belong because um, even before they believe or they become, because we believe that when people belong to the church, then it's in the community. We're all about relationship, and we believe it's in those relationships that they will um, begin to believe, and, and out of believing, that the believing will shape who they become. It's not us who changes other people. And so, as, you know, if there's deep inner healing that needs to happen, if there's life change that needs to happen in people, then we walk alongside people as God does that work in them. And so it's not us, it's not up to us to do that work. And we certainly don't need to do that work before they come here. Um, they need, you know, they need to feel, they need to belong here. And, and that's for anybody. We want anybody to belong here. Um, everybody's welcome to belong here before they believe um, and before they, you know, subscribe to all the, the correct theology or things like that. Because as we've talked about, you know, even our theology isn't necessarily correct. I think one more thing, and um, that is if we don't... Um embrace them with the love of Christ and we shun them from the church there's a community out there that is willing to embrace them and not that does not lead them to Christ in any kind of way and no healing so I think we that's where we when we shun someone uh, and we see them as other and we push them away then we send them off to uh, to um, in bitterness and ungrace and they'll find a community that will will affirm them in a way that is not necessarily healthy. Okay. Thank you. That's one deserving of several talks. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a, yeah. And I mean, that, there's a lot more there. I mean, we're probably only touching on the surface. And so, you know, if it's like, oh, well, you didn't say this. Well, we didn't say that. Um, but, you know, maybe have a conversation. Um, you know, we'd love to chat about those things on a more personal basis if you have questions more about how we relate to that topic, too. Just that we're starting from a point of we need to, we need to do a better job on this. Yeah. We know our hearts right, but we need to do a better job yeah. on this. Right. Okay, um, I think this, this question has probably both a practical and a spiritual part to the answer, and it relates to the incident of Aaron Driver, who uh, was unfortunately killed by the RCMP while planning uh, a terrorist act. That was against a, a church. So if that had happened here, if he'd been coming here, how do we prepare for that? How would we react uh, and what are your thoughts about that? 
Well, um, I'm not 100% sure the RCMP knew what to do either. <laughs> well, I mean, they did eventually, but, you know, they, you know they're, they're only as prepared as they can be, and that's their job. Um, but I think on a practical, we'll, we'll do practical first, and sure. then we'll do, okay. On a practical level, um, you know, we're always looking at our, um, you know, we, 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 we understand that we are an organization, we are a place, we are building a community place where people gather. And so um, we do have to take some measures of safety and security. We're not going to start putting police cars in front, you know, or you know, have security and you know, you get scanned when you walk in. But we are in the process of um, doing. Uh, we have somebody who's consulting with us to talk about our um, risk assessment, um, how you know, our, our strategies for dealing with uh, things like you know, fires. Um, you know, it really goes over everything. Uh, one of my friends has started his own company after graduating from uh, college for risk assessment. And so what he's doing is he's going around to different churches and uh, businesses and being like, do you know what to do in these situations, these one-off things that we generally don't think and plan for? Like, we do plan to protect, to take care of our kids in our different ministries, and we have a general fire route plan, which is just go either door, just run. Go outside. Um, go outside. <laughs> But what do we do in those situations? And so uh, my friend has uh, Run Safe, I think is the name. His last name's Mike Running, or Running, so he called it Run Safe because it's, I don't know, whatever. Okay. Anyways, point of the story is he's putting this together, and it's a binder that gives us all these situations of what do we do and what do we need to upgrade. Do we have a way to communicate to the whole church if we have to, if we do a lockdown where it's like, you know what, keep the kids downstairs. Uh, like, there's a lot of practical things and even government legalities of how it should be handled. And so the practical answer is we're in process. Yeah, that's good. I think there is a, there is a biblical and spiritual answer to that as well. Jesus said that we can expect that there will be people that will hate us because of our, our, um, our commitment to Christ and to scriptures, to God. And, uh, there will be people that will, um, will not respect where we're at. And um, so we always run the risk of, of being targeted, let's say. Now, we've lived in a, in a country with tremendous amount of security where our faith was, has been respected as, the, as one of the primary faiths of the culture. And so we haven't experienced that. But there are lots of places in the world where uh, Christians would gather, and every time they gather, they're at risk of some kind of violence coming against them or imprisonment or something like that. And the history, uh, the history of the church is full of um, stories of martyrs, people who died um, and, um, because of their faith and because of what they believed in. And the apostles said, at one point in time in the book of Acts, they were flogged and they were beaten because of their testimony for Christ, of teaching about Jesus. And when they walked away from that, the Bible says in, in the book of Acts, they were rejoicing because they were, or they were, uh, it was, they were counted privileged in, to be uh, persecuted for the sake of the name of Christ. So I think that's, that needs to be the, the attitude of our heart, is that we need to be prepared to live for Christ, and we need to be prepared to die for Christ. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so um, I have nothing to lose in death. I know I have everything to gain, and um, so I, I guess that would be... Fear can't be the, my motivation in that, and I think we can, we can expect that if... You know, the world changes. We could be um, the minority, and we could be persecuted for our faith at some point in time. Okay. And pray. Yeah. And pray. I mean, that's... Yeah. In a situation like that, you, you, you pray for each other. You, you just pray, period. And, and 
just try and get as close to God as you can, and you pray for whoever's here. Like, there's usually something driving them. Just probably don't try and lay hands on them. Don't lay hands. Don't don't (laughs) lay hands. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Are you guys okay if we do one final question? Is it time enough? Is that okay? Yep. Okay. So don't nod. We can't actually see you. You actually have to say (laughs) So we're going to go with one, one final question. I think it's a great question. I, I did pull it out sort of randomly. Did you write it? No, I did didn't. You actually, it in? this was texted in okay. this morning, uh, and whoever wrote it said, "My eight-year-old son has asked the age-old question: If God made man, who made God? How do I answer him?" Jesus. The answer is Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a it's a difficult concept, I guess, for an eight-year-old. It's a difficult concept for men. Me- many of us, but the Bible begins with the phrase, in the beginning, God. God was there in the beginning, and that's really the answer. At the beginning of everything that we know and everything that we can discover, God was there. So I assume that no one created God. God just is. And at the beginning of everything that we experience in life, Um, the world, the universe, um, the cosmos that we can see now, uh, all of that um, was, uh, before that ever existed, there was God. And so is that a hard concept for an eight-year-old to gather? Yeah, it is. And uh, it's something that he'll probably wrestle with most of his life, but I think that's the only answer I know of. Maybe you guys have a better answer. Well, if you follow who made God and I give you an answer, then I have to ask who made the person that made God and then who made the person who made... Like, it just infinitely goes on. So somewhere it has to cap off of I am who I am. I exist. There's so the, the thing that caps it off is God. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's essentially what we're saying. I mean, when we talk about God, that's really what we're saying. I mean, I mean, we have... The Bible gives us these beautiful images of God, this understanding of God, but we really do talk about God in metaphor. And that to really understand what God is and who he is... You really do go back to Moses in the burning bush and God saying, well, I am. There's really no, there's no real way. You can't really get this. It's just all, and the Bible talks about how everything is in God and exists through God. And, and God is, God is our reality. God is um, how everything is sustained by God. And so, um, yeah, you, 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 that's, we use the word God to refer to the thing. The person, the being, the, the force, we call him a person. The person that was at the was outside of everything, who created everything, who was always existed. That's that was what we used the word God for, is to explain that thing. And so the thing that started everything that didn't come from anywhere, that's God. Um, and so yeah, we, we just really sort of have to go with well that yeah, nobody created God because God is the thing that creates everything else. So. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, so thank you for your questions. Thank you, guys. And, uh, so I got one more song. Appreciated their honesty in answering, and they were, those were challenging questions and no single easy answer. So thank you for stepping up for that.